Welcome to Ixnay, the podcast where we take a deep dive into the shallow end of the electorate as a means to gaming the 2020 election to our advantage. Turn on, tune in, vote out. Hey, all right now. The Ixnay headline of the week. If you're worried about CO2 accumulation from mass, our climate crisis is going to blow your mind. And the runner-up, the president is the most informed person on planet Earth. <laughs> Kaylee is incredible, am I right? Truth be told, I'm probably going to miss some of this stupidity. Previously on Ixnay, I teach Alinsky in, in my grad classes, and when we get to the points about humor, what I often have to caution them is humor works when your opponent can be shamed. You know, like if you try to use humor in a campaign against Lindsey Graham, it can often fall flat because Lindsey Graham is shameless. You try to use it against Ted Cruz, Ted Cruz is shameless. And it worked here because Donald Trump and his team rely so much on this rhetoric of dominance that they went and Trump trumpeted about how dominant they were, and then they looked like fools, and that actually hurt. That was Professor Dave Karp, warning that a strategy of humor alone could leave us empty-handed in November. So while Trump's poll numbers might be worth a titter, a moment to laugh at his predicament, taking more than a momentary pleasure in the polling is like watching online porn. It feels good until your significant other looks into your browser history. Do not succumb to the temptation that his defeat is preordained, because if we know anything, it's that Donald Trump supporters are an unpredictable swamp of interest, fears, and quackery that like to vote in presidential elections. In the words of the Flaming Lips, will the fight for sanity be the fight of our lives? Short answer, yeah, probably. Enough with the hogwash, let's get to it. You may or may not have noticed the evolution of the Trump campaign's game plan. And who can blame you because this shit is exhausting. In 2016, it was about how great Donald Trump was. And now it's about how bad everybody else is. His rallies more than ever lean into spectacle rather than politics. It's a wild thing to witness. And in order to understand what makes a diehard Trump supporter tick, we spoke with journalist Jeff Charlotte about a story he wrote for Vanity Fair titled, Inside the Cult of Trump, His Rallies Are Church, and He is the Gospel. It's so insane that any description I allow will fall short, so we'll put a link in the show notes. You might not need to listen to me, but you gotta read this. Inevitably, you'll get hooked on Jeff's style, as I've been for a long time now. So dig into his books, The Family, This Brilliant Darkness, C Street. His first person reporting, as we discussed in the interview, is fairly unique, and the choices of subject matter are stunning. Shorter version, track him on Twitter. Before jumping to the interview, and I know I beat this drum nonstop, be ready on November 3rd, all right? You can vote for whoever the hell you want, but you owe it to yourself, to your family, to your country to participate. It'll be the easiest thing you do all day for crying out loud. Jeff Charlotte, hello and Ixnay. Hi, Trace. Good to be with you. You know, there, I'll just start talking about your Vanity Fair article, which is the most recent thing I've read of yours. There's just so much grist for the mill there that everyone's got to read it. It's completely bananas. And with Ixnay, our whole point has been to 
get Donald Trump out of our lives. And one of the ways that we considered moving just Republicans, not trying to be overtly political, but just move people who voted for him a little bit, was by asking the question, could America be in better hands? Implying that, you know, a certain set of conservatives could do things that Trump has done, but with less mistakes. But now after reading your article, it's pierced my confidence a little bit <laughs> that Trump voters might be a little more complicated than that. So what do you see as the underlying drive of the 2020 Donald Trump rally goer? Uh, the enemy within, the secret enemies, the possession of secret knowledge. It's what I call uh, the kind of Gnostic gospel of Trumpism. Gnostic gospel is a second century Christian heresy, right? But if we want to understand the beliefs, the theology of Trumpism, it's a good analog. It's all about the idea that whatever the official story is, the establishment, that's all fake news. Uh, and that the real truth is there only for the initiated. It's communicated in code. Uh, it's something Trump refers to often in his rallies. He often says, uh, he tells you horrible, horrible stories. And then he says, and there's more, there's more I can't even tell you, right? Um, so this sort of, this idea of a sinister threat. And, and that's probably not something you're going to move those voters on. If, if, you, if you buy into the idea of an enemy within, even by challenging that concept, you prove yourself to be the enemy within. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love like a good Gnostic secret society, like, but when it's like in an Umberto Echo novel or maybe even the book Holy Blood, Holy Grail or something like that. But that's why I hate talking about QAnon. I mean, why is their influence so perfect? I think this is part of what we're talking about for this time, for his people. Well, what's interesting, I think, I, I, so for Vanity Fair, I traveled around to Trump rallies uh, um, around the country looking at the role of religion played in them. And I'd done the same thing in 2016 for New York Times magazine. And back in 2016, the sort of the theological vein of, of Trumpism was really more akin to what's called the prosperity gospel, which is a sort of reading of Christianity in which what God cares most about is you being rich. And you can tell if God likes somebody because they're rich. And if they're really rich, God likes them a lot. So Trump is anointed. And if you follow him, his blessings will trickle down to you, right? So it's, it's and, and that's what Trump would, you know, he says, elect me and we're going to win, 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 right? So fast forward several years, and from the Trump believer's perspective, it's been nothing but winning. They see their man as deeply successful. The problem now is not so much winning. The problem is protecting your winnings from those who would take them uh, away. And I think, I, I think that's the appeal of it. QAnon that network of conspiracy theories, you know, the vast number of Trump supporters who believe in some aspect of QAnon haven't even heard of QAnon. Most of the people I right. spoke with, there's a, a core who knew what QAnon was, but there was a lot, they'd never heard of QAnon. I mean, they knew, of course, that the Democratic elite are practicing human trafficking. Everyone knows that. And they said, oh, you learned that from <laughs> Q. And they'd be like, what? I don't know what that is. And that shows you sort of that the QAnon is a sort of the unfiltered, distilled conspiracy mongering, but has reached far beyond its its adherence. Yeah, crazy, crazy, crazy. So, yeah, it's gone from that kind of prosperity gospel, name and claim it type stuff to craziness. And if the I, if part of the problem here is that they think they're secret societies or secret forces 
holding Donald back from giving them their just desserts and that they need to protect him from that. What do you make of it when Donald Trump says that Joe Biden is taking directions from secret forces? I mean, that, that's why I I'd actually I wrote this Vanity Fair piece and then uh, then came that Tulsa rally, which was the resumption of the rallies. I wrote a little follow-up uh, that's also on the Vanity Fair website, just reading closely that, that Tulsa speech, because I think that Tulsa speech, a lot of people, that was their first long Trump speech they'd ever listened to, and they came away wonderfully reassured. Like, that guy is losing it. He's so incoherent. He didn't get a very big crowd. Keep in mind, actually, he got the biggest crowd he's ever gotten because right. everyone was tuning in. It wasn't incoherent at all. That was what a Trump speech is, and for those who know how to hear it, those who have been training themselves in here by listening to these speeches for four years, it was really a powerful speech. He referred to secret forces controlling Biden 13 times. Um, wow. And I de- by the way, that number, these people are so deep into numerology, they probably noticed that too. 13, aha! You know? Um, Truthfully, as soon as you said 13, I was like, oh, 13. Of course, 13, right. <laughs> he, used, he used control, the word control, in reference to forces controlling Biden 11 times and twice called Biden a puppet. Um, and spoke at different times of the forces controlling him. Sometimes it was the Chinese, sometimes it was Schumer and Pelosi, sometimes it was the unknown. Trump doesn't talk much about Soros, although he has invoked him before. Mm-hmm. Talk to anyone in the crowd, Soros will come up just like that. Sometimes it's Soros, sometimes it's the Rothschilds, sometimes they just cut, you know, let's just get down to basics here, the Jews. Um, yeah. A lot of them, they'll practice that kind of that's a kind of conspiracy mongering rooted in anti-Semitism that many of them don't even know. They're just reciting the protocols of the elders of Zion, but they don't know that. They don't experience themselves as anti-Semitic. They say, I love Israel. Um, yeah. <laughs> but they're using that old, that, old kind of, uh, that old kind of hate theory. Yeah, amazing, amazing. Well, maybe we should backtrack a little bit to your book, The Family. Uh, maybe you were still living over in Brooklyn when I read that. I remember I got it from the Brooklyn Public Library right there in Carroll Gardens. Oh, and uh, yeah, uh, and so I, so I know you've been paying attention to this crossroads of religion and politics for a long time. And if people haven't read the book or seen the series on Netflix, maybe you could explain a little bit about who the family is. But mostly, I guess, how a godless heathen like Donald Trump was able to, to convince them, yeah. along with evangelical Hispanics, really God-fearing people probably, to all get under his umbrella and think that he's the chosen one. So the family is the oldest and arguably most influential Christian conservative group in Washington. They are distinct from other Christian conservative groups like the Family Research Council or Focus on the Family. I love this word, family. Um, in the sense that, uh, in a couple of ways. One, they're not interested in your soul or mine. They're not interested in the masses. They don't particularly care. Um, They were founded in 1935, the height of the Great Depression, with the idea that FDR was sort of satanic um, uh, and that Christianity had been getting it wrong for 2,000 years with its focus on the poor, the weak, the down and out, that what God really cared about were powerful people, those whom they called the up and out, the key men as they called them. And that's who their, their, their so-called mission field is. And so it's a group that's forever been composed of uh, politicians, uh, military leaders, and business leaders, and they have one annual event every year called the National Prayer Breakfast at which the president always speaks. 
Um, it's sort of an aristocratic fundamentalism. And I have to say, before Trump was elected, I wondered if they would, in fact, resist Trumpism. Mm -hmm. um, right. In the sense that another way they're distinct from a lot of American fundamentalists is they're very international in focus. Their focus is, in fact, largely on dictators around the world whom they adore and believe are chosen by God. But they've never embraced that quite at home. They've never, you know, never gone full authoritarian at home until Donald Trump. And uh, what was surprising to me is um, they have, let, and this is just as true as the Southern Baptist Convention. There were Southern Baptist leaders like Russell Moore who said, Trump is an abomination. And he thought, well, great, you know, he's a big deal, Russell Moore, he's out. The Southern Baptist got in line behind Trump. Same with the family. There's members of the family, um, uh, like Congressman Mark Sanford, who uh, ran against Trump briefly, who said, wait a minute, this isn't what we were talking about. He's out. Um, the, the movement got behind him. And that's true across the board of, of Christian conservatism. And I think so much has been written about the transactional nature of that deal. Uh, and I think that's really important. It's been a great deal for the Christian right. It's been a great deal for Trump. Yeah. People say, why would for they sure. do that? Because, because they have things that they want in the world too. They, they, and, and they're getting them. I mean, no less than Ralph Reed has said this has been the best administration for uh, Christian conservatives in American history. They've gotten more of what they wanted. But there's, that's a transaction. There's also the transformative element. And I think that's what's really scary is because it, cutting that deal with Trumpism has led the Christian right into an open and explicit embrace of the strongman ideology the strongman theology um, that's actually at the heart of the family. The family has a parable about Donald Trump called the Wolf King, um, and they mean that as a good thing. Um, seek out the Wolf King. That's who you want in charge. Um, uh, that's become, uh, that's gone from a sort of a, a, a very narrow intellectual strand of Christian conservatism. That's a mainstream idea now. Um, you can find that right on the floor of the arena at any Trump rally. Wow, the Wolf King. That's the first I've heard of the Wolf King. My God. You know, I, I feel like we have to, on, on just the purely electoral front, that we need to be screaming that Trump is not going to be easy to beat. I mean, I think that even Vanity Fair reading Republicans know that he's a kook, right? But they're into him for either financial reasons or maybe some, you know, half-baked religious Supreme Court perspective. They're into him for that reason. But it's like, how do we convince people who listen to this podcast or everybody out there that this movement that we're talking about here is not a fringe movement? This is really a lot of people. Like you mentioned, a lot of people are at the rally. A lot of people are behind Donald Trump. But I don't think, I think everybody thinks, oh, they're just a bunch of cranks like professional wrestling fans or something. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, there was a point in the story, I'm reporting on this story, I'm speaking to a woman I met at, uh, in Sunrise, Florida, Broward County, Florida, which is, you know, deep as blue Democratic Florida, where 22,000 Trump fans turned out and filled the arena and there was more out, out in the parking lot, right? And uh, as a woman who had been an Obama voter, now she's a Trump voter, and she's telling me all kinds of crazy conspiracy theories. And at a certain point, I'm thinking, you know, I can't even use this. This is too, this is too far out there. But then she had a she had a, an elaborate theory about how that horrific shooting in Las Vegas, where a man opened fire in a country music festival, killed over fifty people, was actually part of this 
Islamist Saudi led um, conspiracy to kill Donald Trump. And I'm just like, this is so out there. Well, then I do a little research and I found out where is she getting this idea? What fringe website did she get this from? She got it from Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson <laughs> didn't endorse himself. He hosted a US congressman who said that really that that shooting was a nexus of terror. And I suddenly realized Vanity Fair, and you're right, Vanity Fair is glossy, magazine. I'm sure there's some kind of, you know, country club Republicans reading it and so on. It's a pretty big circulation magazine. Tucker Carlson's viewership is four times as big. And I realize, and I say this in the story, I said, you reading this thinking this is crazy, you're the fringe. Uh. Diane, this woman who believes that there's a Islamist conspiracy in Las Vegas to kill Trump, that's the mainstream. There's more of her than there are of us. And I think the first step that we have to take and it's a really essential step, is to stop dismissing these people as kooks and fringe because that's reassuring to us. That makes us feel better. Right. But we are actually the ones out of line with reality. When we say, hey, look, this is a massive movement. It may not be massive enough to have an outright majority, but we have mm -hmm. to remember, you don't win the presidency with an, act, uh, with an actual majority of the American population. You win it with a really devoted 35% of the population and that he has and uh, I think we need to be realistic about that I think he can be beaten um, but oh the, the confidence with which daily now we see Democrats feeling like it, it terrifies me like we've yeah. been here before don't do it again um, I mean it just comes down to so few votes in just a few states that the way things can tip that it's for anyone who's paid attention at all, it's terrifying. But I can most people are just kind of going through their lives smartly, probably not having to worry about this kind of shit. <laughs> They're well, just not and, worried about it. And there's just one way in which the press is complicit in that, and I'm not deliberately complicit. And I'm only careful there because, of course, Trump uses the press as his main enemy. Right. One of the things that you learn going to Trump rallies and. Uh, when I report on them, I don't go and sit in the press cage. There's a metal cage in the middle of the arena, yep. and that's where the press yep. stays, and Trump uses a prop and says, look at those scum and everything, and everyone screams at them. Um, and the press stays there, and they don't move amongst the crowd. They also don't really report on what's happening at those rallies. Um, so, for instance, I went to a rally in Hershey, Pennsylvania, the so-called sweetest place on earth. Hershey chocolate is based, and they love their Trump. Um, and in the rally, he makes a joke about how maybe he's going to stay for more than four more years. He'll stay for eight more years, 10 more years. That was a, in the fall, that was a theme he was doing. And as part of it's like, I'm joking, not joking, joking, not joking. That was the only thing they reported from that rally. What they didn't report was the nearly, I think, 20 minutes he dedicated to X-rated, gruesomely violent horror stories of what so-called illegals and, and animals were doing, decapitations, disembowelments, and I'm using the polite language to describe what he described, beatings to death with baseball bats, the victims always, you heard a little bit of it in Tulsa, it's 1 a.m. and a tough hombre is crawling in through the window and there's an innocent woman at home and her husband, a traveling salesman. You know, you see, it's like he's a getting beautiful these, blonde. These he's always got I know vintage pornography or something. He's always worried about blonde women, too. It's always like a blonde, blonde woman. Blonde women, yes. Whiteness. He's worried about whiteness. Um, and he knows that works. He spent about 20 minutes doing this. That should have been the headline that the president, you know, when the president is saying, is trying to tell you that the what you need to be worried about, Trace, 
is that the Democratic Party is releasing, and he said, he said, in Philadelphia, they go through the prisons and they seek out the worst animals and they release them into the countryside so they can carve out your heart and eat it. And he doesn't mean that as a metaphor. He claims that this has happened. That's the damn headline. That's a, not, it's, and they don't report it because they think that's not politics. That's not right. policy. Right. That is the politics. Whatever Trump says, but he could care less about policy. That's the stuff. And I think if people were hearing that, people would be like, holy shit, we, you know, this is something we got to be scared of. Yeah, I think the press misses the idea that these are not really political events. They're kind of a hybrid of like some religious ritual and some Guy Debord spectacle, situationist spectacle. I mean, it's a weird scene when I watch them. Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad you were, used the word spectacle because I think that's really important, the way in which... I think there's a there's a temptation for uh, uh, probably a lot of your listeners, folks in our circles, to dismiss it as spectacle, as if spectacle isn't powerful. You know, oh, that's know. just spectacle. What do you mean, just spectacle? Just spectacle raises up empires and tears them down. And Trump understands that. This is this is the central insight of of reality television. He's like, I've been. I've been doing nothing but spectacle my whole life, and now I'm the president of the United States. I never actually did anything. If you're Trump, you know, I never, he never achieved anything, did anything, really earned that much money on his own. What he did was spectacle. No. He spectacled all the way to the top. Now's the time of the show where we talk about sponsors. Almost every podcast has a moment where they ask supporters for donations, sometimes via a subscription service like Patreon. But you know, we're not just a podcast. We're a super pack, so we'll maybe just play it. That's a little something we like to call backmasking for dollars. Now you'll never be able to tell, but it's a fundraising message in reverse designed to subliminally encourage whoever hears it to send money to Ixnay. Can you hear it one more time? Now I know what you're thinking. Subconscious messages? What the f hell? I saw HBO's Watchmen. But we're only using rock and roll style backmasking as a way to raise money. We're not Satanists after all. The beauty of this scheme is that we can play the message from time to time and you won't even be bothered to notice that we're begging, well, maybe more like persuading you to give us money. I think you'll agree that as a fundraising strategy, that's pretty cool. Less intrusive and even less demanding of your conscious yet receptive mind. So just relax and let us ixnay your troubles away while you donate early and often, even if you don't know why. Well, I would say, you know, kind of even beyond the fringe of QAnon, I sometimes think that there's some attraction to him just because he makes mistakes all the time, that he's always goofing up and he seems like maybe he's one of us, right? That he's kind of a, a regular goof. And and I'm, I'm reminded, a girlfriend one time told me as we walked by like a psychic shop that you should never underestimate the power of someone holding your hand and acting like they care for five minutes, just a little bit of time, just pretending like they care. And I still don't understand why the people at these rallies think that he cares about them. Oh, I do, because he's good at it. He's really good at it. And and again, it's a little bit... Uh, so the Tulsa, I'm using that Tulsa speech, because a lot of people saw it and they, they were reassured when he talked for 15 minutes about 
his trouble walking down the ramp at West Point, which was widely seen as uh, evidence of, of trouble. He told a 15-minute story, complete with imitations, reenactments. It was comedy. If you paid attention, the crowd was laughing. They understood yeah. he was doing this. It was a confessional tone. It was intimacy. And that's what Trump... There's The, the Trump rhetoric is a sort of a double signal. He reads from the teleprompter, and it's boring, and he knows you're a little bit bored with all his... And then he looks up, and he did this at Tulsa. He looks up, and he says, Son of a bitch! And the crowd went wild, and you could measure it on Twitter. People like, he just said son of a bitch! They don't know who he called a son of a bitch. They were just so delighted. And, and they experienced that as, that's closeness, you know? He was being president, yeah. but he cares so much about me, he's just gonna swear and speak straight. Or he's gonna make fun of his own yeah. body going down the ramp. Yeah. There's yeah. this, this. I think we, we really under, there's, it's all, we see the self-aggrandizement, we don't recognize, right. there's this element that he uses, that he takes from eh, reality te television, from comedy, he uses self-deprecation. It always ends up with Trump is great, but it goes through a yeah. valley of self-deprecation, yeah. and people really appreciate that. They say, that's so close. God, he's just like me, except better, and I could be like that too. Yeah. When, when he did that, when he was at Tulsa, when he was talking about going down the ramp and drinking the water, all that, I actually thought it was kind of funny. And I thought, he, in a way, he had a fair point. Right? I mean, it's like walking down a ramp like that is tricky in dress shoes. And, and all of that seemed to be a little bit overblown. I mean, it looked funny. That's true. Yeah. But I'm not so sure it said that he had Parkinson's disease. And I saw his excuse that he didn't want to get water on his tie. As someone who's worn a lot of ties while you're out working, it's a good point. You don't want to get, spill water on the front of yourself. Well, yeah. And that's just the, the, the strategic thing. I mean... Uh... Look, I'm against this sort of focus on Trump's weight, Trump's ability. I mean, he lies about his weight. A lot of people lie about their weight. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, both on ethical standards. Like, look, my problem with Trump is not that he's overweight. Yeah. My problem with Trump is not that he can't seem to drink a glass of water. My problem with Trump is the fascism. That's actually the issue for me, you know. Um, and uh, and I think he is able to signal to his his devotees look how trivial trivial they are yeah. you know um yeah. yeah and yeah like you say he played that he played that routine for laughs i think what people also don't realize is that he does i, I first realized this when i was studying his speeches in 2016 to write about them and i started watching them without sound trump's timing is borscht belt Mm -hmm. uh, you know yeah. yes he's an anti-semite he's also <laughs> a new yorker and um yeah there's a lot of Jewish comedy. I'm Jewish, I can say this. Yeah, There's a yeah, lot of yeah. Jewish comedy in yeah. what he's doing. And I think so many of us are so horrified by what he's saying, we're not recognizing this. There's an old Borscht Belt formula. Funny because it's sad, sad because it's funny. He twists this a little bit. Funny because it's mean, mean because it's funny. Um, but it's both, back and forth. And it allows him to say things and then say it's a joke but not a joke. So when he says, I might stay for more than four more years, right. he's joking. He's also not joking. Yes. And I think people should pay, that's the way he floats that into the realm of the possible. Yeah, I mean, I think he, the, you, what you say reminds me of, I think he, he probably welcomes these weird tangential attacks on the way he looks, the way he's walking or things like that. It's like, don't throw me in the briar patch. It gives him something to talk about that's different from 
from being a fascist, right? It, it's different from his policy if he's all he has to talk about is someone making fun of the, his hair or his skin color. It confirms every time he said they because he then and I've seen him do this at rallies again and again. Say, look, they've got nothing because I'm winning so much. Mm -hmm. All they can do right. is make fun of my hair, right? And maybe you're a person sitting there in the audience. Maybe you weigh more than you want to. Maybe your hair doesn't look the way you want it to. And you say, you know what, but I'm a good person, but people attack me for that, right? That's all they have. They don't see the inner truth, but I see the inner truth of this man. And yeah, he's crude and he's crass and so on. But every time we do that, we're sort of, we're an academic word, we're reifying that, that distinction between uh, essence and surface. Yeah, it's amazing because he's there at these rallies and he's telling them that they're elite, which I think is great. And he is like the elite of the elite. I mean, the guy's never really had to do anything in his life and he's out there. And so the people, I assume that they appreciate that. Um, I guess the kind of the, the, the wrap up on all this is that one day the politicians, I think that eventually they'll not be able to serve him anymore that he, or he won't be able to serve them anymore. And that eventually they're gonna give it up on him. Even if he gets reelected, eventually they're gonna start to pull back from him. But how long do you think this kind of what we see is a cult of Trump personality? And he obviously is not going to disappear like George W. Bush or something. How long do you think we're going to have to deal with this in American life, whether he wins or loses? Uh, the rest of our lives, I think. And I think this is oh, what's really God. dismaying people. Boy, Biden's going to sweep the Trumpers out. He's not going to sweep 200 federal judges out. Oh, and, first. you know, one of the things I've been thinking about is um, uh, Trump just elevated to third position in the Defense Department, uh, very Trump as general. I think who is not going to get the job, I haven't kept up, maybe he's already been pushed out because of enough sort of racist comments came, came out. But the reality is, look at all the agencies where there's been a purge and a remaking, all those resumes that have been burnished, those people can keep coming back. But in the military, who's been getting promotions for the last four years? Those generals are going to be with us for a long time. So Trumpism as an ideology and as a line that has been crossed, that's going to outlast it. And, you know, and I think the fear that everyone looks at is that Trump has opened the door for someone more competent. It's, it's almost like Trump right, would like to be right. a fascist, but that would require too much effort yeah. for him because he'd rather think about himself. Tom Cotton, on the other hand. Yeah. There's a savvier, smarter oh. man. And right. uh, shudder to think what happens. Uh, I think Trump is, Trump is not the, the, the low point. Trump is, Trump is the gateway to something worse if we don't, if we don't like really an, slam that door shut. It's like an H.P. Lovecraft novel. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'll get you out here on, on this one. Um, if you'll just put on your prophetic hat, it's like at my election party on November 3rd, do you think it's gonna end with kisses at sunset or punches at dawn? <laughs> uh, um, well, I don't know who your friends are, Trace. <laughs> it could be, it uh, actually could be both. I realize as I say yeah. that, that it could easily be two things. I, 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 well, first of all, I think um, uh, we have to take seriously the possibility that he will lose and that he won't leave. I think, and at this point, even Joe Biden's, you know, we have establishment people saying, yeah, that's a, that's a real, that's a real problem. I am very cautiously optimistic. He's going to get beaten and he's going to leave. And that the Trumpism that we have to deal with is this new, more visible, ugly strain in America. Like I'm yeah. very cautiously optimistic, but 
that doesn't happen if we just start saying, ha ha, look at him, he's on his heels. Right. It's, it's fight every inch of the way till, till that election day. I mean, that's what I've talked about a little bit. It's like, I think we need to try, even in the, even in the red states, they have to try and win as many votes as possible, even if it's just, you know, a symbolic little victory along the way to Joe Biden winning it all. It's like we it's like a, in sports, you know, sometimes they talk about it, it's like bad. It's bad mojo to run up the score. It's like time to yeah, run up, run the, up score. the score, <laughs> run up the score. Exactly. Uh, and, and because the score, I think the other thing we got to remember, like right now, there's a lot of people saying uh, they're not going to vote for Trump. Obviously, some of those people voted for Trump. Now they're not. Everything we know about American electoral history, that's people expressing anger. I'm frustrated with him. I'm frustrated with the way he's acting. I'm going to tell this pollster I'm not going to vote for Trump. But I've always voted Republican. Right. I get in that booth. Mm, I guess I'll vote for him yeah. again. I don't like it, but I'll do it. He's going to get... This this idea that he's down to thirty percent that's not going to happen. So the, I'll, I'll let you go after this. Someone once told me that Republicans they every day they get up and they drive past their polling place thinking about voting, whereas Democrats are like, yeah, I don't know, maybe there's an election coming up or something. That they're so devoted, Republicans, to hanging on that we can never count them out. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. All right, well, thank you so much, man. It was a great talking to you. I could go on all Good day. Good talking to you, Trace. Goodbye, Jeff Charlotte. For a limited time, we're inviting Americans of strong moral fiber to participate in our Slap 'em Up sticker campaign. For five bucks, we'll send you a pack of Ixnay's classic anti-Trump stickers guaranteed to help you win friends and influence people. You see, around the country, people are stressed out by the current political climate, and we found that peeling the back from these stickers is a kind of self-care. And when followed by boldly or even clandestinely applying them in fun places, a lift of spirit is guaranteed. And that's what I think we all need, a recharge of spirit. America was founded by rabble-rousers protesting reactionary pressure. Think of applying these stickers as a tribute to that revolutionary fervor. So go to ixnapack.org to order your stickers and slap them up, America. It's fun. It's provocative. It's pig Latin. And if I've said it once, it's a thousand times. You may have no interest in fucking with politics, but politicians are interested in fucking with you. So get registered. Get ready. To defeat this thing, every state is going to need maximum turnout. Volunteer. Make a difference before somebody makes a difference for you. With apologies to James Carville, it's the Electoral College, stupid. Voters need to run up the score on Trump in every county, in every state. So double check that people in your network have a plan to vote. We're closing in on less than 100 days until the election. And even though there may be no NFL football in November, and I don't want to jinx things, I feel like it's okay to start rehearsing your touchdown celebration dance. Booyah. So thanks again for everything. And if you're out on your bike tonight, don't forget, the nature of your oppression is the aesthetic of my anger. Ixnay. Help me, make me, help me, make me.